0: Hello and welcome Beaker Seekers. I'm Jillian Barch, your host and science editor for the Daily Wildcat. And you are listening to Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat science podcast. This week we are talking with Stefano Nirazzi from the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona. In this episode, we talk about his research on Mars, future projects he wants to do, including one on Venus, and his experience of moving from Italy to the US. Before we start this episode, I just want to apologize. I had very poor internet connection when we first started recording, so there are a few glitches here and there, but it's only for the first few minutes and then it's clear from there on out. Thank you for joining us today. Can you give us an overview of what your research is with what is under Mars South? polar cap and how did you come to disprove the theory?
1: So perhaps it's easier to start from, from the second question rather than the first, um, because everything started as when when this paper about a possible subglacial lakes under Mars uh, came out in 2018 and I was quite skeptical about it because uh, in my opinion, the evidence didn't really support uh, the interpretation of having liquid, liquid water under the ice, and so I started to think about alternative explanation, and uh, this is this is where my actual research started and how, how I got interested in on this topic, and so first I was um, trying to find uh, more uh, radar uh, evidence of these subglacial liquid bodies. Uh, just as a reminder, these these Uh, these lakes that they hypothesized exist under the south polar cap of Mars were found by very bright reflections in radar data. And so one explanation of very bright reflections even on Earth is that you have, um, you have liquid waters, for example, like lakes. Um, And, uh, and so I was trying to look for other evidence. And uh, uh, I found it, but it was absolutely because, for example, uh, at one location, there would have been uh, liquid water within the ice, not just at the base, and that is just not possible, at least on Mars. Um, and also, I, I, was start to, I started to play with a little um, a radar signal model, to try and replicate these uh, bright reflectors using other materials rather than liquid water. And I could obtain a very promising results, the results were not perfect, but I I was just li- really playing with the model, I, I was I'm not an expert in the kind of uh, this, in this kind of studies. And so I was uh, my, 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 my knowledge was kind of limited in that regard. But that, that's how how everything led to um, to the rest of the study really.
0: So the next question is: Can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in this study? Uh,
1: yeah. So um, as it was, you know, looking for more evidence and playing with this model, um, a colleague of mine, Isaac, was the actually the first author of the study that just came out. Um, Contacted me because he he learned that I was interested in, in, uh, in this matter. And also like we, we knew each other from a very long time ago. We were grad students together at UT Austin. And so uh, he was curious to see what other evidence I had found, which was mostly in, in radar data. And he introduced me to the rest of the team that he had already started assembling. And, um, and so, really, my, my contribution was uh, just one piece of a fairly big puzzle. Uh, everyone was contributing something. For example, I mentioned that I was playing with the model. So, there's, uh, we, we have in the team actually an expert in these models who was uh, basically uh, looking in detail uh, how to replicate the same. Uh, radar signals and so it was really a large team effort and my mind was only a, a relatively small contribution um but so like besides my the radar evidence that they brought forth uh, there were lab measurements uh, other modeling as a and even evidence from other instruments for example like um Visible and near infrared uh, spectroscopy, which is something I am absolutely not an expert. I wouldn't even know where to begin with. But but you know because because everyone was you know bringing their back expertise uh, under Isaac lead, we could just merge everything together and and compile what what we believe is is a is a very um, Um, plausible story and a very easy explanation for, for these signals.
0: It sounds really interesting. So what was the most challenging part of that research?
1: Yeah, um, I think it was actually probably piecing together all these elements of this puzzle in a, in a cohesive first way. And and then also in a very convincing way, because um, as, as we were working on this project, uh we started reaching out to everyone else too especially at conferences this spring and so some of the authors of the original uh lake papers uh, started to started to hear about this and well first first they were not very happy that their hypothesis was under under challenge but also they have uh, some some very convincing arguments against our own explanation. So to work really hard to make a very convincing uh, because otherwise, if um, if you're not very careful about alternative explanations, what happens is that at some point, someone will, will actually disprove your alternative explanation and that ends up reinforcing the first explanation, uh, even if it had more problems in the first place. So like we had, um, we really needed to be very careful about how we approach this issue. Uh, You know, of course, also because we are all colleagues after all. So even if we are disproving another colleague's theory, we still need to be, you know, respectful of everyone else and and making everyone happy. Very
0: cool. So what was the most surprising part of this research? Like, was there anything that stood out to you the most out of everything?
1: Yes. So I think... I think there were actually a couple of things. First, uh, um, as I mentioned before, uh, a team member was working on spectroscopy studies, and the aim of that was to find actual evidence of uh, of our explanation uh, being uh, being correct for these bright reflections, which is that uh, under under the south polar cap and perhaps even within it there are these smectite clays. It's just a a very large group of clays of many different types that are known to exist, not only on Earth, but on Mars in fairly large quantities. And so this, this technique aims to, uh, to look at their presence on the surface. And so when, when we actually found evidence of that, to me, that was surprising because I never heard of, of their presence around the south polar cap, but the signal was there. So that was like a, a very positive surprise for all of us. And so really exciting. And uh, on the other side, the fact that these explanation, the, these mectites clays can can be be so good and suit so well the the observations and made me think that then perhaps that those can also explain many other mysteries around the polar cap and elsewhere too Uh, because uh, there are other studies that show that these these reflections are not unique there are actually many others around the source polar cap so perhaps we can explain those and uh, there are other other locations on Mars where we have uh, really mysterious uh, radar detections. And so now I wonder if if smectites can be the explanation of those as well.
0: Very interesting. Uh, So the next one is I read that the lab used measurements of clay minerals as the input for a radar reflection model and found that the results of the model match very well with the real observed data what other methods were used for the research and what was significant of this finding?
1: Yeah, so, as I mentioned before, uh, there was a little bit of uh, simple analysis of the radar profiles, uh, both the, the ones that were used in the original um, lake hypothesis papers, uh, but also other ones. So, for example, I found these, these other uh, radar profiles along with uh, another team member was Jennifer Whitten, and uh, we started to analyze those and find uh, how, how these mektite explanation could uh, could also fit with these other measurements. Uh, there was, as I mentioned, modeling of the radar signal. That was uh, part of Dan Lalich. Uh, the lab measurements were done by Isaac Craig uh, back in Canada. And uh, the final piece that Canada, I think, You know, provide a very solid evidence for these mectides was the analysis of spectroscopy data, which was by Ibrahimovic Organ.
0: And then what is next for this research? What's kind of the next step for it?
1: So um, it's it's kind of hard to tell um, because uh, our was actually one of three papers that came out in like within four to five weeks this summer. And uh, so one uh, one paper, as I briefly mentioned before, found uh, other bright reflections elsewhere in the South Polar Cap. So perhaps one uh, one avenue would be to apply our same methods to these other locations, trying to to. Uh, maybe test if smectites can can explain all these reflections. And the other paper actually came out with a whole suite of materials, and smectites are just one of them. Uh, for example, there are many other type of clays that are not not really smectites that should be tested. And of now, and as of right now, we don't really even have uh, lab measurements to that we can apply, for example, to our modeling. So. So in that case, we would really need more more lab measurements. Uh, There's also just simpler iron-bearing minerals such as hematite. Hematite is basically what makes Mars red to brownish in color. And so it's everywhere on Mars, but uh, the properties of uh, hematite and other minerals are not very well known at at the frequencies of the radar that we employed, or the temperatures that are very low at the South Polar Cap. So there's a lot of uh, different avenues of studies, including lab measurements or just analyzing different type of data.
0: So are there theories like this for all the other planets as well? Like, could this ever spread out to other planets too?
1: So this is, this is kind of a unique observation, mostly because Mars is the only other planet where we have subsurface radar sounders. One exception though is Venus. On Venus, we in the past, uh, we, we didn't have a radar sounder, but we had a radar imager. And now I'm not an expert, I know very little Venus, but one puzzling observation was that above a certain altitude on Venus mountains, uh, there is something that is very bright, and so there's uh, all sorts of explanations to reconcile these um, these bright reflections on mountains with what could exist on Venus. Because as a reminder, Venus is completely different uh, from Earth and Mars. So the temperatures are extremely high. It rains sulfuric acid. Uh, the The atmospheric pressure is so high that uh, the lower part of the atmosphere is not even a gas anymore. It's technically a, a supercritical fluid that is something between a gas and a liquid. So there's very unique materials that could exist on Venus. And um, someone came to me actually fairly recently, a few days ago, trying to ask me like, "Hey, can is it possible that maybe in the past Venus had?" an environment that was much more similar to Earth and Mars, so it force mectites. And then it turned into the planet that it is right now, which is completely inhospitable, but some of those mectites perhaps or other type of clay minerals were preserved. Now, I, to be honest, I don't really know. I, I find it a bit suspicious that we find these bright reflectors only above a certain altitude. So I don't really think it could be like smectites could be an explanation, but why not? Maybe, maybe it's other similar materials that, that, could, that could explain the same thing.
0: It's interesting to think about that it could have been. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is like to be a science PI on a selected NASA Mars data analysis program proposal to study the fluvial and volcanic history of outflow channel systems in Mars?
1: So, first of all, this was my first funded research project as a PI, um, which is kind of an interesting story in itself. Um, Technically, I am the science PI because at the time when when we submitted this proposal, uh, I was only a grad student and usually grad students cannot be PIs, which means principal investigator. So, I had to be science PI and my advisor is actually the PI, but I'm leading the whole research. And uh, so first of all, like it's incredibly exciting to be a research group leader. It's definitely an experience. And so like I was lucky actually to have an excellent advisor who helped me a ton on that. And now I basically started forming a team that I have right now, which is composed of both like a Mainly me because I still do most of the research, but there's uh, uh, grad students, undergrad students, and you know, uh, like uh, leading a team and every having everyone contribute everything in a cohesive way is very important and exciting too. So uh, in that regard, it was kind of a, a bit of a challenge, but it on the other side is also very fun. It it brings a lot of satisfactions with it. The main objective of, of this study is to learn more about this the history of this area, which is quite poorly studied. There's only like a two or three uh, published paper on this. And uh, this area is kind of unique because it's, um, it's very large outflow channels where you can think about them as uh, relatively shallow canyons that are carved into these plains in the northern hemisphere of Mars. So basically, you can think about smooth, incredibly smooth, almost featureless planes that extend for thousands of kilometers. And then at some point, you find, you find these, these huge canyons. Uh, these canyons extend for like hundreds of kilometers. They are almost the size of, the, for example, the Mississippi River, if you want to 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 make an example. Uh, The thing though is that unlike traditional rivers, uh, these start from two very small locations that look like depressions. So they really come out of nowhere and then they they extend for hundreds of kilometers and then they disappear both on the plains like uh, as if it was like maybe an ancient kind of swamp or some kind of like very distributed uh, uh, terminal lake or something like that. And in some fractures, which we still don't know uh, how they formed. Uh, There's just that some fractures uh, all of a sudden appear on the surface and uh, these channels seem to disappear into those. So we we really want to learn more about the history both of the channels, like how did did they originate? How, how, where does all this water come from? It seems that it comes from the subsurface, but currently we really lack a a comprehensive explanation and a a plausible explanation for such large amounts of water. Because again, these features are extremely large. And, uh, but also the area itself. The air itself is full of features that are all different from each other. And they all point to a different formation mechanism that goes from liquid water flowing on the surface to to lava flows interacting maybe with ice to perhaps uh, water coming out on the surface as mud volcanoes. um, And perhaps even volcanism in the subsurface. Um, So really a lot of things to piece together or maybe to Uh, maybe we just need to find new explanations to reconcile everything. So it's quite a challenge, but at the same time, very exciting.
0: It seems very challenging. I wouldn't even know how to start with looking into that. Absolutely. How do you, like, how do you do that research? And kind of how do you know what you need to look for in that research?
1: Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, there's many different types of features and terrains. And that requires actually us to apply many different kinds of techniques and uh, analysis of different data sets. And so that is why we have a relatively large team, and many different students, each one looking at, uh, uh, at a different data set or a different technique. So, for example, um, we look at images both in the visible and the infrared to explore the subsurface, the surface, sorry. And uh, the subsurface where it is exposed, for example, in troughs or fractures, uh, and we have layers to look at. And uh, in that regard, we are trying to make a a geologic map, which is uh, something that geologists use to uh, read the landscape. Um, We use radar for, for looking at the Melia subsurface, but there's also techniques to try and obtain uh, information about the composition of the surface itself. So that kind of couples with geologic mapping, but also stands as a technique on its own we even use gamma ray data to look for the composition of the surface. Uh, there, was, there, there is still a mission, uh, Mars Odyssey, which had a gamma ray spectrometer working until a few years ago. And uh, despite the very low spatial resolution, uh, we can get from, from the spectra of the gamma rays, we can get information on the composition in the first few 10s of centimeters of the subsurface. So whether there is a lot of silicon or iron or chlorine or water, uh, we can tell that from gamma rays. And that couples with uh, mainly with uh, the surface radar exploration and a little bit with the visible imagery and infrared imagery exploration to make a geologic map and trying to understand what kind of geologic units and terrains we are dealing with. And uh, perhaps the Kind of the more exploratory kind of um, kind of endeavor in this study uh, was to use impact craters not only to determine age. That is a, a, a very common technique. Uh, basically, uh, counting the size and and spatial distribution of uh, impact craters can tell us something about the age of a surface. So usually, if a surface is older, it will contain Uh, a lot of craters, and some of them are going to be large. If a surface is very young, instead, it's going to contain only a few impacts. And usually they are small because it just didn't have enough time to accumulate impactors, such as meteorites or even comets. But perhaps the the more interesting part of the study was that we use craters to To explore the subsurface, because in in their impact, they inevitably excavate the material that are that is present in the subsurface, and some of the craters, especially the larger ones, um, exhibit uh, some features which are now thought to be uh, associated with the presence of water, probably ice in this case in the subsurface, and so we use uh, we use the the size of the impacts and the age of the impact craters themselves to try and understand how much water and how deep it was in the past and how that evolved through time. We can get the depth based on the size of the crater. Of course, the larger the crater, the deeper it excavates. And we can get the age of the crater by counting the craters that are superposed to the crater itself because any any surface is actually um, exposed to impact craters so even impact craters themselves often we find craters inside other craters and so based on that we can get an age and that and then we can reconstruct a depth to the uh, what we call the water ice table so basically the region in the subsurface that contains water ice, um, and we can reconstruct the timing of the surface uh, as it changes through time. Uh, Probably it started uh, as a relatively shallow uh, water ice reservoir, and then it got deeper and deeper as the water probably uh, slowly evaporated uh, and was lost to the atmosphere. But that's what we are testing. And so far it seems to look, to it seems to work really well which uh which is really exciting because it was kind of a it was a quite exploratory in nature
0: very cool i would have never guessed there are so many parts to that kind of research and figuring it out so that's very cool what does a day in your life look like now what are the various projects and issues that you are currently working on
1: so, um, it, it kind of depends from day to day, uh, but usually it's a mix of um, some kind of meeting. Uh, it could be a telecon for some instrument. I'm involved with the uh, shallow radar or Shurad instrument. So, sometimes there are telecons about it, other times it's uh, it's just meetings with, uh, with, uh, with my students or some other team member or some collaborator. And most of them still happen remotely, but we are slowly trying to go back to normal life and in-person meetings when, when that is possible and safe, of course. Uh, Another part of the time usually is taking care of uh, some manuscripts. Uh, One of the paper I just learned today was published online, even if it is like uh, still in the works a little bit, Uh, or like future proposals to get more funding for new projects. Other part of the day is just doing the actual research. So for example, I mentioned that I... Uh, I'm working on a geologic map. So that is what I'm doing mostly right now. I'm looking at visible imagery and trying to delineate features and uh, and slowly build this geologic map that we want to make of, of this region. I'm involved in a few other projects. Uh, so until very recently, I was working uh, with uh, with the radar that I just mentioned, SHRAD, that there, there is some new data that has been processed. And uh, so I was involved in uh, in the preliminary analysis of these data. Uh, in the past, I was involved in a project that is called the Subsurface Water-Ice Mapping on Mars, or SWIM, which uh, aims at finding the likelihood of uh, very near surface, so in the first uh, one to five meters of the subsurface on Mars uh, find uh, water ice, and that is very important because future missions, especially human missions, will need to have water both for drinking and as a as a source of fuel or for other means. And so, uh, water is probably one of the most precious uh, resources that we can have on Mars, and finding how likely how likely it is to be in this surface is extremely important. And so that, that was the goal of that other project. And every once in a while, I'm just um, collaborating in many different projects. For example, the one I mentioned before about the South Polar Cap. That is not really my study region, but uh, because it, it dealt with uh, uh, analysis of radar data, I, I, am, I have a little bit of expertise with a kind of analysis. And so I was, uh, I was just asked by, by my colleague Isaac to, to collaborate in research.
0: Very cool. Is there a project you really want to do in the future that you're not really thinking about right now?
1: Absolutely. So um, there's maybe a couple. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to go back to my PhD work on the North polar cap of Mars. Uh, I, I just finished publishing about it, uh, but I'd like to go back uh, with a new with a new project and uh, basically start from where we where we left the research. There's a ton of open questions about the nature of uh, some of the deposits uh, under the polar cap and how how they recorded uh, the climate variability in the past on Mars, uh, especially in a period where we don't really have much data and so uh, we would just like to know more about about these features and what they can tell us and so i'd like to i'd like to go back on that another thing that i'm i've always been curious about is actually exploring other planetary bodies for example venus i mentioned it before um it it hasn't had a a dedicated mission in something like 20 30 years Uh, there has been one Relatively mis- recent mission, but that was mostly focused on the upper atmosphere. Uh, nothing about the lower atmosphere or the surface or the interior hasn't done in like 30 years. And so uh, we are lucky that now Venus is about to see a little army of spacecraft uh, visiting it, because uh, two NASA proposed missions were just was just approved, and uh, uh, one involved some... Um, a kind of imaging radar that is going to explore the surface in even more detail than was done before. Uh, Another one is going to send a probe through the atmosphere and then gonna land on the surface to examine the properties of the atmosphere, which are extremely puzzling because it's such a a unique environment that it's even very hard to replicate in labs. Uh, Some labs have these so-called Venus chambers but to replicate uh, all the phenomenon that happened is extremely, is extremely hard. And in general, we usually need like some kind of observation about the atmosphere before doing any kind of research. And so this was really overdue. And there's even a third spacecraft coming in from the European Space, Space Agency, which is also going to carry a radar this kind of comp this is going to complement the the nasa radar i guess and so uh, i'm really excited to see new research on venus so probably i'll just have to wait something like 10 years and i hope to have the possibility to get involved because that is uh, a really exciting planet uh, but also there's other many other planetary bodies that contain some sort of interesting features
0: that'd be really cool So we're gonna move into the background portion right now. So what were you like as a kid and growing up? Were you always interested in Mars and space?
1: I think I've always been interested in in science in general, in one way or another. Uh, Not necessarily on Mars, not necessarily on space, but space has been there uh, in uh, one way or another. So like, for example, when I was a young kid, I remember having like a mineral collection, which of course I expanded a lot when I became a geologist. Um, But I was like, for example, for some strange reason, I was really passionate about chemistry. I don't know, there was something about chemistry that really excited me. Um, Over time, I kind of lost interest a little bit, but chemistry has always been something exciting or just in general, like. Physics or how to, you know, using science to explain what was happening around me. Of course, as a kid, you don't ask yourself too many hard science questions, but you're you're uh, you're still extremely curious to 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 understand nature, and so uh, science was doing that for me, really.
0: Very cool. I was awful at science in high school, so. So, I'm a writer, but <laughs> I love writing about science. I always wanted to go into it, but
1: that's, that's awesome chemistry
0: I'm terrible at chemistry <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I kind of terrible chemistry too. I learned, <laughs> even though as a kid, I liked it a lot.
0: <laughs> so could you talk about your educational journey and what was that like?
1: So um, so everything started in Italy I, I'm Italian, and I didn't come to the u s until until fairly late in my education. All my high school and college happened happened in Italy. For the college, I went to the University of Bologna, which is the most ancient university in the world. Uh, It's almost a thousand years old, by the way. And so in college, I studied geology and became super passionate about it. And so I continued uh, when I was there uh, into a master's. But halfway through it, I I decided to enroll in an exchange program that brought me to the US. Uh, That was mostly due to actually seeing some some American students in the years before visiting, visiting the University of Bologna and geology in particular. Because until then, I didn't really want to go outside of Italy, I was like perfectly fine staying there. And but seeing how how passionate and how happy they were uh, in, in doing this experience, like really motivated me to kind of get out and explore something new. And so that's how that's how I first came to the US. I was an exchange student for the second part of my master's. And that's how I got involved with Mars Research, um, because I went to UT Austin. And that's how I met my uh, my advisor, which was still is my current mentor now, but uh, I'm still working with him. And then I decided to, to try and get a PhD also at UT Austin. And, uh, and I continued and I continued there until, until I got my PhD. And then I, I continued with a, with a postdoc uh, right here at UA.
0: What was the most challenging part of your education journey and then going into the field that you studied?
1: I've always really enjoyed my time in in academia once I, I got into college. so there was I, there wasn't really a very challenging time, just because i I guess I got really lucky with meeting the right people and uh, finding the right program for me. And so I think I think the most challenging part was actually what came before. So probably high school in Italy, which is which is quite different from high school here in the U.S. Because uh, in Italy, like all the programs are 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 predetermined. So when you enroll in an high school, you already know that for five years instead of four uh, here in the U.S., you're gonna follow a. A certain type of classes, and uh, and so I went into a curriculum that was uh, pretty heavy on science and technology, which was what I was passionate about, and so I enjoyed that part. But then um, there were other parts that were less sciency. There was uh, mostly about the you know like uh, humanistic topics, which I. I didn't really dislike like, for example, I enjoyed a lot like philosophy, Um, even if I was like, maybe not super excited at first, it actually taught me a lot. But there were other things like history, I I used to like history a lot. But for some reason, we just take I I guess had the uh, maybe not the right program, maybe not the right professor, the right teachers. And so we, I slowly, basically became kind of you know unhappy about about all those topics and so going through high school at some point got got really difficult and but then fortunately going going to college was quite a relief i i want i kind of started to rediscover all these topics and uh, and i finally had the opportunity to do Really, what I was interested in, without being forced to do something different, something else, and and even then, like lately in the last few years, I I became interested again in those humanistic topics that I, you know, kind of used to hate when I, when I was in high school, and so I'm now I'm you now happy to have overcome the, I guess the challenge that was kind of high school for me.
0: Very cool. Um, so are the colleges a lot different from like? the colleges
1: here, or are they pretty similar? Um, it, it depends. So on some aspects are are very similar, but for example, like, because in high school we cover a lot of different topics, like for example, as I mentioned, literature. I don't know, for me it was literature, even English literature, um, not just Italian. Uh, there was history, uh, you need to take a philosophy for us. Um, In some other high schools, um, you need to take like, for example, Latin, even if you are in a scientific curriculum, uh, if you go into a classical curriculum, you need to take Greek as well. Um, so it, it depends on the high school you go, but you you do you cover usually a lot of different topics. They kind of give you a general overview, even if you concentrate maybe on science or some kind of uh, humanistic uh, art or art or or topic. Uh, but then when you go to college, uh, you really mostly study what. Uh, what that program is about. So for example, when, it was, uh, when when I went to college and I started studying geology, um, only the first year had topics like math, chemistry, or physics that were not really geology, but still it was three topics that were needed later on for, for geology because math was needed for physics, physics was needed for geophysics. Uh, chemistry was needed for geochemistry and mineralogy. So everything everything was well delineated in the program but there were no no more topics such as like a government which we did in high school or or history or literature or some uh, like a second language with the only exception that you in, in Italy usually you need to take a, a certification for English but English is taught, through usually at the end all the schools in English in in italy so usually it's relatively easy to get the certification for english but <laughs> it, so yeah in, the, in that regard it's uh, it's a it's a bit different than than the us but in other regards is is the same kind of university so how the courses are taught or um maybe how you go through certain topics is more or less the same. For example, one one main difference uh, also is that usually we don't have any homework in Italy and we, we have very few tests. Um, most of the examinations are actually oral. There's very few written examinations. I, I like to think that in Italy are very positive about students feeling like adults and being responsible to learn on their own and do homework on their own i mean in some in some cases we still had to do some kind of exercise but it was it was our responsibility as students to to go through them and we were not really forced i mean if you if you don't study if you don't do your homework you're going to fail at the exam and you know that so so we had to go through the same thing anyway
0: yeah that's so nice so what is your favorite memory from working in this field and the research that you're doing?
1: I, I, think, I think I'm think i almost certain that the best memory was getting the uh, MDAP, the Mars Data Analysis Program funded, uh, which is my current research, because that was quite a surprise, to be honest. Like when I submitted the proposal to NASA, I was basically certain that it would not get through. It's very hard, extremely competitive. And so, and uh, as the months passed while I was waiting, I started to discover more and more uh, problems with the proposal, and I was almost ready to basically start resubmitting again and thinking about how to fix it. When my advisor called me and said, "Hey, can are, are you sitting down right now?" I was like, "Sure," and they're like, "Oh, you're got funded," and I was literally speechless. Like, I. I I couldn't speak. Like my advisor was like, "Are you okay? Uh, are you still with me?" Because, like, I couldn't speak. Really, It was like, I don't know. A million things were going through my mind, and and it was, it was just amazing. Uh, like an amazing feeling. And uh, it was actually a time where I was trying to finish writing my dissertation for my PhD, and I, I just couldn't work. And that day, I was like, it was about midday, about around noon. I just couldn't do couldn't do any any work that day i just just spent the rest of the day relaxing thinking about it like trying to process the thing because it was it was just amazing
0: those are the best moments where you have to like process it and take a day to
1: absolutely absolutely
0: what experiences led to you developing an interest in space and do you have any stories from this time of your life
1: so i think i think everything started in my childhood um as, as I mentioned before, I've always been interested in sciences a little bit, as, um, a little bit in space, and I think uh, it started with with my parents actually. So. Uh, my mom was watching um, a lot of the Star Trek original series, and and later on the the Next Generation. So I was watching Star Trek with her, and I was like, "Oh, this is super cool!" Uh, of course, like right. And so I got super excited about that on that side, like I guess space exploration, um, and discover new things. And on my dad's side, he he used to buy these. Um, uh, these VHS cassette documentaries about space. There were a couple of them that were accompanied with uh, with like little guides about the topic of the week. So it could have been black holes, galaxies, one of the planets, or or one of this some spacecraft, comets, etc. And so both watching those documentaries, uh, they were made by a, an excellent. Um, an excellent documentarist was still working in Italy is like one of probably the major documentarists in the history of documentaries in Italy and and it was really well done and I got even more I got even more passionate about space exploration in general and then I just you know like uh, while going through through education high school first and then college I just had the right amount of support. My my parents always supported me a lot, and um, I I think I just I just found the, my way to to cultivate this interest. And then I started working on on Mars and with radars. Really, when only when I was in an exchange program, but that was um, that was an interest that I, I I had already started to to cultivate. a little little before then because like planetary science has always been at that point a a kind of a something that they wanted to do at some point Mm -hmm. so kind of a kind of a dream really
0: very cool and then what sort of an impact have your mentors had on your life
1: um huge uh huge i was very fortunate from very early on to find some amazing people, especially in academia, um, at some point, I just got interested in in research in one of the classes which was about uh, mineral deposits, so it was mostly like on the almost on the economic side of mineral deposits, so you know studying the different the different type of uh, minerals that one can find on on the earth And uh, the teacher was excellent. And so I was like, um, I went went to him and asked, hey, like, do you have anything for me to do? Like, uh, he showed us a lab that he had to look at fluid inclusions, which are basically little pockets of liquids and gases that are trapped inside minerals. And those can tell you a tonne about how the mineral formed and so he said well sure i have this thing that i needed to i needed to complete and so like i was like would you like to work on it and it was like sure and so i was doing that for free didn't have any funding he told me like hey i'm sorry i cannot pay you for this i i have zero funding for this but i was like i just want to get some experience and and so from then, like he, I think he, he recognized that maybe I was interested in research. And from very early on, he supported me a ton. And he told me like, I think, I think you should do research because I think you're really good at this. And then basically I came to the US and then I met what, what is still my current mentor. And he, he exposed me to Mars science, especially uh, working with radars. And from them, I have always been working with him one way or another. And he, he also supported me a ton. Uh, like, in, I think most amazing advisor one could have, because like in some regards, he, he kind of always guided me in the right way, but, but he was all almost always kind of hands off. Like sometimes I was the one actually asking him, Hey, like, hey, we need to sit down and talk about what I need to do next, because like. He was, he let me really free to explore the various paths. And sometimes, you know, like making, making the wrong decision, you know, of course, he was always there to limit my, uh, my troubles and, uh, you know, making sure I was not making huge mistakes, but, but he let, he let me basically grow as a, as a scientist on my own. And uh, so his guidance was just really top notch. That's
0: very nice. And it's nice that you're able to still work together.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And then, what advice would you give to students who want to pursue a career in any space related field or go into space research?
1: As, as some already may know, like research in general and acad- academia can be extremely tough. Like, I know a lot of people who had a very hard time at some point just, just dropped altogether. But if if that is your dream, it doesn't have to be astronomy or space science. It can be anything, really, in academia. I think that if it is your dream, you should go for it. And uh, once once you get to academia, then I think the most important thing to realize is that you should not hesitate to reach out and you know speak with other people as much as you can, because uh, academia may have a lot of issues, as I explained, like. I know a lot of people who dropped out, and that I think was mostly due to things like bad advisors or bad 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 environments toxic environments so don't be afraid to to reach out you know like speak about it. It's extremely important because like the majority of people are there to to help you they would do anything about. Um, that they can to help you grow as a as a scientist and uh, they are extremely enthusiastic about what they do and they would be super happy to have someone do uh, basically what they do or do something new so it's just that you know it may be hard but it brings you you bring home a lot of satisfaction and and in my opinion the 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 help is there. It's just that sometimes it's kind of hard to find. So, but don't hesitate, follow your dreams.
0: Good advice. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I learned a lot and I thought this was great and I really didn't know much about Mars. So it was really cool to learn a lot about Mars.
1: Well, th- thank you so much for for having me. It was quite a surprise when I when you contacted me and uh, super happy to be here.
0: Behind the Beaker is a Daily Wildcat podcast created by Alexandra Perry. The Daily Wildcat online all the time at dailywildcat.com. Thank you again to Stefano Nierazzi and everyone involved in this podcast, including managing editor and producer Pascal Albright, Udba Venkantarman, The Science Desk, and Arizona Student Media. Behind the Beaker is a podcast about the unbelievable science that is happening in the world around us, and the unbelievable scientists who are behind it. For more UA science stories, visit dailywildcat.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at dailywildcat. As well, check out our Twitter and Instagram at Beaker behind for sneak peeks of episodes. We currently have a few photos on there right now of the research we talked about in this episode. As always, don't forget to email us any questions you want answered, and we will do the research and answer your questions at the end of our episodes. You can email us at beakerpodcast at dailywildcat.com. This has been Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, and rate our show. Till next time.